Welcome to the seventh episode of the Hashishin. I'm your host, Shirag Mamir. I'm really excited to have Jibs from Tricom Heavy Extracts, based out of Orange County, California. You can follow him on social media on Instagram at Tricom Heavy Extracts One. That's the number one. Dude, thank you so much for taking time out of your Sunday evening to hang out. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to meet you. Good to finally sit down and do this. I know we've kind of been trying to put it together for a little bit. So yeah, yeah, no, like. Yeah, I know you guys all keep super busy, you know, I mean, just through your feed alone, it looks like you keep pretty busy, so I'm sure you got a lot going on, so again, just appreciate your time. So you've been making hash for a number of years now. Quite a bit, yeah, as far as just even alone on the solvent list angle, and let alone as far as like being a company and on like a production level. Rolling on like six years now. Okay. Um, and then as far as like, like open blasting back in the day and like I had some minimal bubble hash experience like dry sifting and keeping before then. But yeah, so I'm like that six to eight year range for like six years of like full time making bubble hash or solving this as like in my main time. Like, yeah, that's a long time. Yeah. Yeah, especially like you said, doing it full time. Yeah. And so. So you started with the open blasting, like, I guess, BHO, obviously, you're referring to? Sure, yeah. Okay. And then from that, you went to, you started doing this, a little sifting, and then you moved into, like, washing, or was it kind of... Well, I guess as far as, like, just some of the background of, like, my in, into the cannabis industry in Colorado, I started in Colorado, and it would have been 2013, like I said, we were open blasting. Like my first real in into the industry was through um, Fat D. I guess he's not really Fat D anymore from Top Shelf Extracts. Okay. Uh, shout out to him. Yeah, like the original Secret Cup. Like me and a buddy of mine entered in like some sour diesel shatter. And, like that was our first kind of like my first kind of like in and networking as far as like people making hash extract artists. I guess was like the big term, you know, being thrown around at that time. Right. It's still people like to use. I'm not really necessarily the biggest fan of that term, but that was like that was my in. And then so it was like you know, open blasting, making oils, like early Colorado medical patient, and then. At that time, not the most relevant person nowadays, but uh, River Rock, Rock Butter, Bo Johnson. He was making his Rock Butter as like powder BHO, and I figured out how to make it. And I was like kind of getting tired of backyard blasting, and I like showed him some of it I made. And I originally got hired on to make BHO at River Rock, and they like wanted to do a saltiness thing. They asked me if I'd like ever washed or anything like that. I'm like, yeah, kind of washed. And then just kind of just went from there. Okay. Like cool. Made, made a thing of it, you know? Yeah. So, and so you actually... Like a fully planned thing at that point. It was like, you know, went somewhere seeking or like offered employment as like making hydrocarbon extract. I just got the opportunity to make water hash. I've done it a couple, like I said, a couple years prior. My buddy who I had blasting with, we'd had a crop that... We had tried to wash a little bit of and like nicotine at the time, like went to some bags and it just like completely didn't wash at all, like just too sticky, didn't yield or anything. And then like, so I didn't really have much experience, but just wanted to try to do something different. It was like, once again, at that time, as much as like solventness is prevalent now and there's a lot of brands and there's a lot of names, really the only people doing solventness at the time was, was nicotine essential extracts and like ice wax, Matt Rise. 
maybe full flavor and some of those earlier ones were kind of obviously still doing maybe some of those things at that time but as far as like production branded entities of like solventless that was there yeah. wasn't there wasn't a lot of us around at that time right and so in denver you mentioned nicotine essential extracts yes and then so once you kind of got moved into this like solventless department for what used to be only a hydrocarbon extraction company yeah how long after that did you I guess, kind of start doing your own thing. And I know at some point you did something with Ken Wall. Uh, yeah, yeah, So then it was uh, the first six day, like six to nine months was just under like River Rock, the, the dispensary was like license it was or umbrella or company we were, we were working out of. And it was just like full melt or like hash because, you know, once again, rosin wasn't even a thing or even like a flicker on anybody in anybody's eye at that point in time. So... Yeah, we were doing that, and yeah, and then Ken came on about at about on the point in time of when we really like made the melts and like tried some heavy extracts. I think I guess as far as like wanting to have it be its own separate branded thing. Right, and this was all under still the medical umbrella in Colorado. Yeah, or? the the vast majority of it would have been under the the medical umbrella of Colorado. Colorado's medical umbrella at that time was still, I guess, what would be referred to as a compliant system. Like, you know, you had to have license, licenses and there was a, a lot of paperwork and regulatoriness behind it. Right. And is that something, I guess, that you and Kim had to navigate together once you decided to? Yeah, and that was something we did navigate together as far as, like, as a brand in Colorado. We navigated, I guess, that like legal space for a good like year plus together as a team with like us both both being owners and partners at that time right and were you guys uh, i guess friends before yeah partners I, mean, like, or? I mean for a lot you know that that's my brother that's my mommy that's like my day one i was locked up when i was younger in like youth correction systems he was like one of the few friends that like always stopped with me and like always stuck with me and like there to kick it as soon as i got out and like i don't know like yeah, that's the homie. Like, his wife's my sister. I like kick it with his kid, you know. Yeah, so, like family, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, cool. And so, you know, I'm curious. Like, even though you guys were close friends like that, why you decided to do it together and not just like individually or just one because, of you? Or, I guess it was, like his into it was he he came from he came from like the kitchen the kitchen workspace, being a line cook, being a chef, more so that background not necessarily the most widely known thing, but that's not necessarily the anybody that's worked in a kitchen or like worked in a restaurant space. It's not necessarily like the healthiest work environment. It's very high stress and surrounded by a lot of alcoholics and things like that. So it's just like, you know, he, as much as he loves cooking and food, you realize when you're surrounded by those kind of people and environments, it's not necessarily like where you want to be forever. And, you know, within having, starting to gain control and doing, doing the water hash thing as a more separate branded thing. I saw it as an opportunity to like, to bring him in as a partner, just knowing that he, him and I have always like really vibed well together and work hard together and do those sort of things. I don't know. Yeah. And did he, I, I guess have experience washing back then as well? Or? No, not really. No, he just came, like I said, from like the chef and the, yeah. in the kitchen, in the kitchen. Background, yeah. Just a very different as far as like, Anybody that's made hash, let alone water hash things, things and application from from the kitchen are become very second nature or very 
similar to, to hash making aspects as far as like mise en place. Um, it's a lot of like general techniques. And it's just, yeah, similar kind of pattern. They, they do well, like Matt Rise, like some of some of the reason and like the thought process behind, you know, like microplaning hash once again back back then, like freeze dryers weren't a, a thing and the reason why like someone even thought of microplaning something was because they came from that kitchen worker line chef or line cook and chef mindset of like, well, like, you know, how can, how can I create that surface area? How can I spread something thin that quickly? Yeah. It's just, how can I zest a big puck of resin? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's pretty interesting. I know that both you and Ken at some point a while ago posted something that I found kind of funny and was just wondering if you could tell, you know, people a little bit about that experience, but like, I guess there was at some point where you guys first maybe were dabbing and you dabbed some RSO on a super hot nail. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, like I said, like me and him go way back in, um, shit, I want to say it's like 2009 in a neighborhood called Westwood Hood in the <laughs> south side of Denver, which at that time was long before Denver was like gentrified. And so we were like on the ghetto and uh, had a homie's like trap house, like in between grows and he pulls out, yeah, like black BHO RSO looking oil at the time, Boro nail, of course hit it red hot and like, yeah, Ken goes first and just immediately just goes like white, just coughs his ass off for like five minutes and then like pukes. It was just like very, just like memorable first experience of like. I guess like dabbing or like the intro to dabbing. Right. Yeah. That's. I, I didn't puke. I definitely got memorably high and remember being high like eight hours later at work and having smoked at like ten hours in the morning and just being at work at like seven o'clock. Just being like, how am I still high? You know, like. That's really funny, man. And so, just for maybe people that don't know, RSO is essentially decarbed BHO, like low grade BHO, and like. Once again, I guess at that time frame in like early 2009 and like the super early days of like people blasting and that Colorado medical program, like some of the reason why it was made that way is just out of people not knowing better too. Like maybe it wasn't necessarily RSO, but it was definitely like some dark boof BHO. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not something that you wanted to be dabbing on a super hot meal. Yeah. So, you know, I... There's something that's kind of surprising to me, and I kind of, you know, want to talk a little bit more about Denver later, but the name Tricom Heavy Extracts, what's kind of surprising to me is that there's really not that many companies out there with the name or the word Tricom in the name. You know, it's a, it's a harder word to say and a very commonly mis, missaid word. There's like numerous hash makers that missaid it for so long now that it's like kind of their own joke about it. And things like that, you know, a lot of people will say like the trichrome and see it and unless you like really know about weed and hash, it's not a not a word that does regularly grab people. Yeah. So I guess it does we'll always slightly have that disadvantage, I guess, as far as branding name or a word. But you know, it's curious because I don't find it necessarily as a dis I, I find it actually kind of interesting that it's not used more because I mean in the end that's what you're doing, right? Like you're yeah. you're yeah. isolating trichomes. Yeah. I, I mispronounced it myself. So, you know, and then the other thing is the the symbol, the kind of what stands for the metric symbol of the micron yeah. is uh, it's kind of like a central part of your kind of logo or your yeah. artwork, essentially. And again, that's not something that you really commonly see, but it's kind of a central part of it, you know? No, that was something, once again, like 
shout out to Ken once again on that. Like when we were working together and doing the company together and like we were working with Artwise at the time, it was something that some of them suggested and we all like collectively thought with something that really just signifies water hash as opposed to like any other form of hash. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, really, yeah, this is the only type of hash that would use that symbol, right? Essentially. So kind of on the subject of trichome, somebody like yourself that, I mean, you know, you've been doing it, like you said, six years full time. Yeah. Essentially. So, you know, especially as a hash maker, you see so much resin, you see so many (laughs) trichomes. Do you feel like there's still kind of a lot to learn about trichomes, like this, especially like the science of it? Yeah, and I still feel like there is, there's definitely a lot that's still unknown as much as I can learn through experience and like by touching plants and like scoping certain plants and starting to get a good personal idea of why certain resins wash or don't wash. There's very little that's definitively and scientifically like known about that right like what is the quantitative information that makes one trichome wall wash and one just like completely dissolve and smear away and like wreck your bags in the wash right um it's something i really can't tell you i have like my decent educated like theoretical guesses about it i go with the the guess or the understanding when when a trichome head or a certain strain has uh, certain blowouts, I guess, for lack of a better term, or a certain higher ratio of concentration of terpenes than THCA within like the trichome head wall, they're, not, they're then no longer stable in the ice and water. Okay. And Once again, that's just me guessing it. That's not right. <laughs> and, and, and I think what you, a lot of like you guys, especially the ones that have been doing it for a while now, because you know, kind of like Nick T, for example, and then Ken Wall as well and yourself are kind of what I consider like modern OGs of like modern hash making, you know, sure. because it's maybe been like six, 10 years experience, but that's way before a lot of other people were doing it, you know, and now yeah. it's become, like you said, much more kind of common and there's a lot of people out there doing it. And there's, I think, some technology that's kind of facilitated that as well. Definitely. There's been a lot of technology to facilitate that once again going on some of the things that i've touched on in regards to the changes from when i first started and ken first started and essential extracts and uh matt rice and some of, the, some of these like really earlier people as you're talking about is like i said rosin wasn't a thing at that point in time let alone a readily accessible freeze dryer there was freeze dryer technologies like freeze dryers have been around scientifically in lab applications for a while but as far as um 90 plus percent of the hash community uses the harvest right that was that wasn't a thing yet right yeah um, and i mean you know i think it's almost like any other industry but you see it obviously within like the hash world is it's almost like an appropriation of technology from other sectors yeah and, you know, adapting those to the use of the hash maker or whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish in this case, you know, drying the resin properly. Yeah. But yeah, that's kind of an interesting facet. I mean, the washers obviously, you know, work. the washers of that's a piece of equipment that we as a community have collectively kind of decided that are obsolete people. Now they use washing machines. The vast majority of us like look at them as like, like what are you doing bro like why are you hand washing as much as like sitting there with a paddle is like obviously very labor intensive 
that is a definitely a technology as far as it's like cleanliness and like its design application is definitely like falling behind but then like the rosin presses are continuing to get nicer and nicer i guess yeah the tech is definitely getting same with the freeze dryers yeah i mean that's advancing and, and the washing is still pretty much pretty basic but you still do most all hand washing yeah right? i definitely prefer the hand washing nowadays yeah is there i guess i know you were talking about the machines just a second ago but what's the reason i guess behind it or why do the you prefer two, the, the two main reasons would be cleanliness and then just like production or like the amount of machines that it takes to equal the amount of production i can do in like one hand washing can you can really only do like three three thousand wet grams in like a single washing machine as opposed to where i'll do like 10 to 13,000 grams in one like 44 gallon can. Yeah, that's a big difference. Big difference, yeah. Yeah, so. And just the cleanliness too, like I said, like a wash can or a stainless steel wash can, it's like so easy to, to just sanitize and spray that out and wipe it down as opposed to the the bubble nows and those machines. There's just, there's more nooks and crannies than you could really even think that they are, let alone like make sure they're sterilized and properly cleaned every time. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I don't know how well, I guess, plastic handles like moisture over a long period of time, but... They're all made out of, I guess, like, plastics out of which we're all told are safe. I'm not, once again, I'm not a scientist, but yeah. uh, they're all safe plastics. But yeah, it's just definitely not the best. Right. Again, since we're, we've been kind of talking about trichomes, you know, I've seen lately that you've kind of had a, I think it's a hashtag, big, the Big Head Gang. Or it's something that you've been using. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you've been making some pretty like fat pulls of like the 120, the 150, and even I've seen up to like the 180. Yeah, and that's something I once again having made hash full time for for six years. Anything really above like the 120 bag, that 150, 160 range, and, like the thousands of washes I've personally done, or like overseen of people is very rare up until recently i definitely attribute some of it to to switching to hand washing and like some of the modifications i've made to hand washing as of lately but honestly a lot of it just really just goes to like just good genetics and like in just good growing as with any hash making yeah i was gonna ask you know like i know that i mean i'm not sure maybe you grow like on a personal level or something but i know you're more of a hash maker but as a hash maker, you know, what are the things that you think really, really factor into basically the, the size of these trichrome heads outside of the genetics? Outside of the genetics, a lot of it's just going to be environment and light spectrum. And those are those two things slightly go hand in hand, I guess, but equally slightly different. Uh, I feel like a lot of the newer lighting technologies and, and just honestly, a lot of it's just the genetics. I feel like through a lot of people paying attention and finally being a little more anal with their selections and like actually breeding off of things that not only just wash well, it's one thing for something to wash well and to be super potent, but something that wash well as well as super terpy and as well as has, has pretty good bag appeal and then breeding off of those things versus like breeding off of something going like, well, that tastes good. Well, like, yeah, a lot of wheat tastes good, but like, to really have that potency, does it have that trichome structure? I think that's that's a lot of it. And I think we're gonna see a lot more of that in the next 
coming, even like coming weeks. So like the next year or two with people using some of these strains like GMO or like that Piho that's going around here in Orange County from like the knockout crew and some of those things like the people are taking some of these cuts that are have yields that we at thought one time in water hash was just like unheard of. And they were like, not, not even possible really. Like if somebody told me they got like seven to 8% off fresh frozen two or three years ago, I would have laughed at you. I would have thought you were, I would have thought you were busting balls and lying, but now like, no, more and more people are finding strains like GMO and like their own other personal crosses of GMO and like, yeah, shout out to Canarado and like Oni Seeds and a lot of these people who are making Harry Palms. Shout out to Harry Palms. Like he's he's somebody who's washing a bunch and like selectively breeding for that and is putting out numerous seed crosses collectively that are like hitting those high numbers and making people like my job a little easier. Right. Yeah. No, it's true. I think the genetics have definitely improved for you know, being geared specifically towards hash. And like you said, I'm sure they'll keep improving. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see like, you know, in five years, the ones that are hitting seven, eight percent now, what it'll, can it get, how much higher can it get at that point? You know, and I definitely think we're kind of slightly, once again, I don't know. I don't want to seem like that skeptic, but I, I definitely feel like we're, we're kind of hitting that pinnacle. I feel like of, of like how much trichome people fit, trichome coverage people can really pack on pack on biomass or flowers and it's dope to see. Right. Yeah. But it's like, it's almost like maxing out basically. Yeah. There's a certain point where like a flower obviously has to have like a certain amount of stem and bud to it to then even hold all that resin. Right. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, that makes me curious, especially since you've been making water hash since before it really became like, I guess more of a trend. Definitely. Um, (laughs) You know, why was it that the 70 kind of became the standard back then or at first? Or was it like the 70 or the 90 U? Or the 90 U, I guess. Why did the, why is it the 90 U? Or I guess like. Why, why were those two the popular ones, for example? And now. I think a lot of it, once again, has to do with that genetic improvement and just people, people growing better weed in regards to just having those better better environments and better lightings just yeah you weren't seeing strains and grows that were producing heads that were not slightly contaminated above the 120u so sometimes that 120u was like that last filter bag a little bit okay unless you were really hitting like those really big clean heads and like clean grow rooms right so like that's some of the reason why the 90u and the 70u definitely like gained popularity over the 120u and then I feel like the, the reason why the 70 was definitely popular before the 90 was is all the original bag sets from Bubble Man and from, from Mila never came with 90Us. And then the 90Us came out later. And then the first, we're on the third edition now, or version of ice extract bags, those first two editions weren't even sold with 90U bags. So a lot of people just out of out of using those bags and production equipment were, were just washing that way. Right. Yeah. And I mean, um, and then now like they started offering the 90 U everybody just in like competitive nature, people wanting better and better hash, just like noticing that 90 U is slightly cleaner on a nail than, than the average 70 U is. 
And then, like I talked about with the better genetics and people growing better, uh, a lot of hash makers aren't even using the 120U bag now. You'll see a lot of people like Cuban Grower was probably the first person I really saw doing the like the 159 into the 90U just because, you know, it's like if you know it's all fire and you know it's all six star, just like collecting it all together. So I don't know, it's just everybody's like own little like touch or yeah, and that's preference. Kind of what and also makes, I guess, Waterhouse unique is that like because there's a lot of personal kind of touch to it, like I, I feel like it makes it, I don't know, but like more of an art form than the hydrocarbon. You know, I don't really know that much about hydrocarbon extraction. Like hydrocarbon, it's all just like one universal <laughs> like slab or big jar of sauce as opposed to, yeah, water hash. There's a lot to be learned or said about like somebody's grow or the material when you're like pulling the bags or once it's dried, the ratio of which the heads are collected throughout those bags. Like it's, you'd never see that in a hydrocarbon extract. You just like, well, I got X amount of grams of oil off the pound. You wouldn't know like, well, or like 50% of this head range, like X percent of this range. And that. So yeah, it can definitely help you like fine tune your personal grow or like help you give that better information to the growers you're working with in comparison to oil making too. Right. Like, Hey, I noticed when you took it a couple days longer, I got more in this head range. Or when you pulled it earlier, I got more in this head range and things like that. So yeah, it's the bags like, don't lie. Right. The bags <laughs> don't lie. That's true. Are, I just had a curiosity. Are any of the people that you are working with uh, using LED technology since you brought up the lights? The LEDs, yeah. I've, I've been having a lot of success with LED material as of lately. I think there's definitely a lot to be said about the larger spectrum of lighting as well as just the, the lower average leaf temperature or resin temperature you're able to achieve the whole life in the grow room. Right. In comparison to like HPSs or like thousand watt bulbs, yeah, just keeping it cooler in there, cooler or doing I guess less. We're using less AC, less power. Yeah, so you're growing, you're growing, growing hash in like a more environmentally friendly as well as like cheaper fashion too, which is dope. Right. Yeah, that's why I was kind of asking just because I'm curious, like uh, you know how the resin production is on LEDs, but apparently it's pretty on par to HPS or definitely. So it's, it's definitely got pretty far in the last few years, I feel like. Definitely. I feel like it was something two years ago where if somebody, let's say like a couple of growers walked into a room not serving a joke or anything, if the dude was like, I use LEDs, he was immediately going to get clowned on two or three years ago, as opposed to now everybody else is like secretly trying to ask the LED grower questions. And like, well, like, what kind of LED light are you growing? Or like, well, what have you learned about LEDs versus like actually making that leap for themselves? Right. Yeah. That's funny. You know, uh, not that I kind of want to beat a dead horse, but back to the trichome kind of size, but really what I more want to talk about is like, I guess the maturity of the trichomes and Again, I know we don't have like maybe the scientific answers to it, but you know, when I spoke to Ozzy or the Cuban grower, he talked about how he really enjoys, you know, the bigger heads because they just have a higher oil content in them. Sure. And I asked him if, you know, he thought that that was a question of maturity and he said he didn't necessarily think so. No. And that was something weird. I feel like collectively a lot of hash makers were maybe had a mis, misinterpretation of 
the like longer you took a strain, maybe the bigger the heads got. And that's not necessarily the case. And it's not necessarily the case on every strain. That might be similar for one strain, but it might be the opposite for other strains. Right. And like, so do you feel like with some of the genetics, the trichomes reach a point where they have almost like an apex? Yeah, I was about to say, there's definitely a point of like peak ripeness, I feel like with any fruit. And I think the constant analogy you'll hear with a lot of hash makers of referring to like trichome heads being like similar to fruit or like a grape head. It, there's a lot of truth to that. And I feel like when they're at their ripest point is usually when they're the biggest. And then, so in a trichome head's life, they'll start from being small to eventually get potentially really big and bulbous. Let's say in that, like past that 120U and that 150U, 180 range, and then potentially maybe even start to then shrink back down. Once they've been like past their peak point of ripeness. Yeah. As you'll even see, you'll sometimes see that, I guess, with other fruits. Once they then start to like get all the way ripe, then it's, they can't get any riper. And then some of those oils then will then maybe like start to shrink back up. Right. And then if you look at dry sift, once again, that's something Cuban or Aussie is once again, very more knowledgeable, but if you ever heard like bubble man rant about it and you, when you're looking at macros of dry sift, a lot of times you'll see, see the trichome head and wall start to slowly start to like shrivel up like a raisin. Yeah. I've seen that in some of Bobo Man's kind of like real close up or macro you know, pictures where it's almost like shriveling almost a little bit. Yeah. And so there's, I guess, kind of various questions that I have. One, do you feel like maturity and ripeness are two different things? Uh-huh. Um, they're not necessarily the same thing, but I think in regards to like hash and trichomes and like, I mean, there's, there's obviously a point of being too mature for pulling material and there's obviously pulling material that's immature. Right. So I think some of what our current conceived notions of like when to pull plants or like when is ripe or when is like the best time to harvest is not necessarily once again, fully understood. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think you're definitely spot on with that. And, you know, that's part of like why I'm kind of curious about these questions that, again, we may not be able to answer, but again, just somebody who's dealt with so much resin, I'm just always curious, like a hash maker's opinion sure. on that, you know? And you see a lot of people in grow rooms and just out of necessity and workflow when you go to harvest a room or you go to harvest a plant, you just harvest it all at once. But once again, there's a lot of similarities, like I said, to like fruit trees and things like that. It's not, not all of the plant or not all of those resin heads are the same maturity. So right. harvesting the plant, like in succession, like harvesting all the tops first and letting some of the lowers mature later. I've worked with numerous growers that do that. And not only seen them pull more flower weight, but also then into pulling more hash weight. Granted, you're like, your grow process is taking longer because you're letting your lowers and like some of those things develop more, but right. you're letting that those lower nugs and lower trichome heads to like reach that same maturity as the top of the plant. Yeah. Getting that exposure to the light once that kind of top layer is off. Yeah. And so, you know, for example, the ones that you were mentioning that, will shrivel, you know, once they've maybe reached this kind of peak point, like you said, and then gone back down. I'm curious what you think. So obviously there's less oil in the trichome at that point. 
likely, but is the oil or the, the chemistry kind of, of the different things in there, the terpenes doing something that's like making the oil more complex than even when it was at its biggest point? Ooh, that's hard to speculate on, I guess. Yeah, it's hard to necessarily say like where that oil went. Did it like, yeah, did it convert or like cure into something different or more complex and not necessarily go anywhere, but it's still within the head itself. Yeah, I don't know. It's a tricky one. Yeah. And I ask because, you know, how you were mentioning that they, the trichomes obviously develop all at like different stages, yeah. even within maybe the same part of the plant. And, you know, the kind of like, I guess, typical information maybe I would say out there or has been out there for a long time for people that are like growing or harvesting is that you do, you pick it when they're not necessarily all like clear, but they have some yeah, quality. Yeah, you see some, a lot of people say like, oh, pull like the, the 30% amber or things like that. Right. And I'm kind of going more so to the opinion that it's when you're starting to see that ambering is when you then start to hit like that peak ripeness or like past peak ripeness. And then you're maybe then going down. Okay. Some of that color or some of that ambering is some of the beginning of that, that degradation or right. that, that shriveling or shrinking or. And so, you know, you mentioned fruits a few times and I'm curious what you think in the sense of like, so when you collect these trichomes, right, some fruits are able to continue to ripen off the plant and some fruits are not. And with the trichome, I don't think they still ripen after all. And once again, going back to like that dry sift reference, let's say if you wash the same plant fresh frozen versus like having been hung for, for like a week or so to where it's like freshly dry, some of that ratio of trichome heads is going to is gonna shift. Let's say if you were seeing 150 off of it, you might now not necessarily see melty 150 off of it once it's dry because some of those heads have like shriveled up in that right in that drying process. And do you feel like when people are like gearing their grows or the plants that they're growing specifically for making hash, they may be pulling it at a different time. For example, if somebody who's growing that for uh, like herb or flower, as they call it now. Yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely, there's definitely some differences. You, you see a lot of people thinking that you should be pulling early for washing. That's not necessarily always, always the case. Okay. And then that kind of also leads me to ask about the cuticle, which has kind of become a interesting subject in, of its own, sure. you know, because like you said, before rosin, it was, there was only a small portion of, of the most grows that were producing, sure. right? Like meltable water hash yeah. or dabable water hash like at, at that point. But the cuticle is kind of interesting in the sense that without it, there just would be no oil glands, right? I mean, it's basically the protector to all these oils that people love, the cannabinoids, the terpenes. Sure. But now in like modern hash making, it almost seems like it kind of has a negative, I don't know, connotation when you, when there's too much cuticle or there's any cuticle at all. And rosin, I think, has kind of solved that issue. Sure. But is it kind of unfair to disregard resin because it has 
a little, I guess, char. Is it Q-tips a little bit heavier than certain other strains? No, not necessarily. And I think that's, I don't know. There's a lot of reasoning behind people's dislike in between maybe like more residue on the nail than others. But I definitely feel like there's a lot of, I don't know, like delicious water hashes or strains that don't necessarily Q-tip the best, but have a lot of complexity and like good yeah. flavor to them. And I definitely, like you said, the cuticle is very important. There is, there is some, you need the cuticle to be sturdy enough to handle the whole time of being washed and soaked and drained through the bags and that, and that whole, whole process of water hash making. But then by the time you come to dab it, you want there to be like this level of it as, as physically possible. Right. So, yeah. It's just kind of a weird thing, you know? Yeah, so weird. It's a very quintessential thing in like making water hash possible, but equally like when people go to smoke and dab water hash and like see the cuticle cuticle residue on their nail for the first time, they're like very like perturbed or like don't understand it, especially if they came from dabbing hydrocarbons or only rosin first. And then they have like, and they see water hash dabbed on the nail. And like, what is that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's, what's this that's left behind? And again, kind of along the same lines of the question earlier, what do you feel like determines the thickness of the cuticle? Is it genetics? Is it the grower skill? Is I think it- a lot of it's going to just boil down to genetics. And then once again, environment too, and the, some of those things like light spectrum and certain strains and genetics can, can fare better to, to certain environments and climates. Like not all strains grow great outside for melt are in higher heats, but some strains can be grown in higher heats and environment and still do just fine. But then certain cuts, as soon as you put it in a warmer environment, all of a sudden you're going to lose like, or get like half the yield out out of it. And it's going to be like really oily, just not work well. Right. I kind of wanted to ask you about something that I've seen you and Ken Wall do. And I know there's been some versions of this in the past, but the kind of Mason jar tech that you guys use. Sure. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, it seems pretty like simple, but maybe effective. So it's very effective with like going back to how not, not everything washes and some of the high risk and like financially and trying new strains is if you go to soak, you know, a couple pounds of weed, that's, you know, we're multi-thousand dollar investment now at that point in time so for it then not to wash or yield is can be can be quite a sad afternoon or point in time so to so to take 100 grams or a small fraction of that material and put it pretty much like an ice and water cup right and see if it's even going to wash to begin with is a very nice assurance before before betting or soaking thousands of dollars <laughs> yeah for sure and so you're taking a small chunk, you're putting it in a mason jar. So does the water go in first or does it matter? Not really. And you'll see see that once again throughout like Instagram or just different hash techniques as far as like people starting with water, starting with material, not, not a major difference. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious. So I pretty much do for me personally, I'll do like a hundred grams in a jar. And so it's like relatively a nice, like even amount. Yeah, pretty much just shake it for a bit and then just, yeah, if you see like that hash 
accumulation and those like actually stable heads in the ice and water like start to yeah just basically fall to the bottom gravity pulls that oil down essentially like or i don't know in water but yeah i mean the i guess the weight of the oil maybe sinks down to the bottom yeah it's a lot easier to bet with like a hundred bucks than like a couple (laughs) thousand i guess it's just a a lot of the reason behind that and just like having having been there multiple times like whether it be from own grow or material we've bought outright or material from like growers on splits and, you know, and would you say like, you know, since you've been doing it for some time, like it's pretty accurate. Yeah. For the most part. Okay. Um, I mean, you can go as far as like, like I said, taking a hundred grams and maybe like shaking it a few times and pouring it through like a super, some smaller bags or like two bags and like, see if you, you get that rough yield that, that you want to see off material, but it's at least enough to know you're not going to like shoot your foot off. Right. Right. Okay, cool. Kind of switching back over to when you guys were in Denver. So you, you guys worked together under the medical umbrella. And then once it went in wreck at that point, were you guys already trichome heavy extracts? Yeah, we were trichome heavy extracts at that time. Yeah. We were doing that for, for like a good 18 months under the wreck and med and wreck umbrella. And what would you say is like, I'm sure you learned a lot of lessons, but maybe one of the biggest lessons that you learned from that endeavor? I guess the biggest thing I learned from that endeavor as far as that we haven't talked about as far as our past was just, you know, just really know who you work with. Like Ken and I have never had any bad blood between us. And though we like don't work together now, hand in hand, some of the reason why the fallout or trichome heavy extracts not necessarily being in Colorado and me like having to be out here, not necessarily having to be out here or coming out here and him starting to do different projects out there. It was definitely just, you know, just not having the best deals with certain people and just being young and yeah. And and yeah, yeah. Just learning. Yeah. And so at what point was it that you, I guess, moved out to California? I moved out to California like 2005, late 2000, early 2016. And it was, so Ken and I at that point in time were working beforehand. We'd worked with a, a group called UCAN that's still around, which is the group that like Blue River Terps comes from, like Tony, Tony Versura. Tony Versura, once again, is somebody like who Ken and I worked with like very readily early on in the in the beginning days he was one of the original partners of river rock where we came from and is that when you guys were the melts or yeah that's that? when we were the melts and trying heavy extracts and so pretty much when we had a falling out with you can and like tony v and those guys was when you know like ken and i started to go our separate ways biz- business wise as yeah. far as like some of the story behind that as far as for people know Right. And once you got to California, I guess, how did you feel like once that kind of Denver chapter was over and you were, I guess, going to be doing your own thing here? Well, yeah, when we first came here, we were working with Beasel for a little bit. We were like helping them run their like cultivation and stuff at that point in time. It was just, I don't know, there was a lot of, I don't know, we we're definitely, definitely unsure at that point in time. You know, it was definitely like a big change, but uh, it's like I'm originally from out here. I know there's like, there's always a big, big market, big, great cannabis community here. So yeah, and I, what was like your drive? I guess to continue 
the project or continue the brand, you know? Because I ain't going to do anything else, just to be honest. You know, just like, just my general love for hash and just not really ever wanting to go back to that mundane, like, nine to five bullshit or going back to, like, the restaurant industry and just any of that. So I don't know. I, like, truly love what I'm doing when I'm making hash. So it never, like, even occurred that anything else, you were going to do anything else. That, no. That, like, you were coming here to do that. Yeah, I'm going to make hash one way or another. Right. And, you know, now that you've been here a while, you know, obviously I keep up with your feed and I see that you're working with some growers, including like the La- the Laughing Shaman. Yeah. And, you know, can you talk about some of the people that you work with maybe, but more so some about the like their practices? You know? Sure, okay. Um, Laughing Shaman is definitely a prime example of like a no-till, like living soil grower. We work with a couple of people who utilize or practicing like similar, similar growing techniques. And that's just for those of, for those people that don't know, it's a grow practice where you're using, you're using soil and you're using organics, but it goes a little bit past that versus every round where you're taking your pot or your bed and you're like throwing it away or mixing it to like create relatively new soil. Again, you're creating such a rich and balanced soil that it's just, you use the same soil in a bed over and over again. And you just replant the next plants, like literally within inches from where the, the last plant was in the bed. You ideally get it to a point where you're just pretty much feeding the plant water. Yeah. I've seen, you know, it's, I, I think kind of starting to become, a little bit of a trend and like there's people I guess who do are, are doing it very well but it's essentially almost like mimicking nature's intelligence right like yeah and it's like you you see some of the some similar trending just in a lot of culture I feel like in the things like that too just the people wanting to get back to more like organic and holistic and less like environmentally impactful right um, practices right yeah, so not yeah. only is it growing some of the best, highest quality, like urban resin, I've like got to see washer smoke. It's like, it's also the lowest impact on the environment. And also you can grow weed like cheaper than any other way humanly possible. So yeah, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons for people to go that route. And I, th- I thoroughly encourage them to like read books about it or research it or try it themselves. Yeah. And I mean, again, as like the resin guy, do you see the difference? No, as much as, as much as I like advocate and really appreciate a good organic, like no-till living soil, some of the best material or like just as quality melt, melt wise material I'm still seeing from hydroponic grows. And I don't think one necessarily makes better hash than the other. As okay. much as I love organics and as much as I really do think like organics is, is like the best, the best route long-term. Right. If you were to blindfold me the same hash, like grown to the same, the same quality side by side from a hydro and a living soil environment, I'm not really going to be able to tell you the difference. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, obviously you smoked a lot of hash and seen a lot of hash. So it just know, comes down to that, like good genetics and that good environment again, and just the plant being healthy. It's not necessarily that one company of food or brand of nutrients is better than another. If you're, if you're like highly in tuned and you know, your feeding structure and you have that good banging environment and you got those good genetics, like 
you're going to get good hash. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I wanted to talk to you about is curing. And specifically, I wanted to start off by asking you about a cold cure. It's a term that like is pretty popular right now. Yeah. And I know that you work with some consistencies that you do cold cure. Yeah. And so can you kind of explain what it's about or what the process is? So I guess like the last, the last wave of rosin before like the cold cure we're talking about now was, uh, you know, the diet funk and the, the rosin jams and the, the wet rosin batters. And so, and then just coming to people trying to figure out a similar consistency of rosin that's staying wet without necessarily having to, to add that heat application. Right. Um, and I honestly had just stumbled upon it personally from maybe laziness from a lack of a better term, just like, you know, the end of the day pressing stuff and just like balling up a bunch of rosin and slapping it in a jar and then leaving it in a cold room for a couple of days. And then, stirring it and then all of a sudden i was getting like some nice wet gushier rosins as opposed to where if i like left those same presses on parchment for a longer time or if you you leave them out you were seeing some of that drier textures so i don't know that's i guess my cold cure technique i feel a lot of people are kicking around the the term cold cure and then just pressing rosin putting it in a bowl and then leaving a jar at room temp and then letting it slightly separate and then calling that cold cure, which it's like, I don't know. Yeah. You know, we, <laughs> it's just a kind of abused word right now. I feel like for lack of a better term, like, well, what do you, what do you think is cold? Yeah. And I mean, that, for that's, me, a cold is like a cold room or like your wash environment. So at least like, at least like a cold room temp, like at least 60 to not like a, like a washroom, but like a colder in like a colder like living room or living area at least below like the 65 60 range like in a wine cooler or something like that yeah yeah um, so we're and just slowing down that butter process and that's that's generally what i aim to do when i'm when i'm claiming i'm cold curing or am cold curing a jar right and i mean you know that kind of leads me to ask does the length of the cold cure matter because you see people posting like you know this is like a one day cold cure, or like a two day cold cure. Or like, I mean, does that make a difference? No, I think the big difference will just be from the strain and the genetic itself and how it's pressed or manipulated and how long that buttering process and terpene separation process is really even going to happen, happen in the first place. Cause if you're claiming you're cold curing in like a 75, 70 75 degree room temp and you're already putting it in a jar like with a slight bit of buttering in it it's gonna it's gonna happen pretty quick right the jar is going to be to its final stage pretty quick right as opposed to if you put perfectly like clear stable rosin in a jar and like uh even like a warmer wine cooler or like a 60 degree room it's going to take potentially like a week plus to fully fully be buttered out or see some of maybe like those, the turp pockets or like the turp layer on top that. Right. And so, you know, when that's happening, I mean, what do you feel that separation does? Well, I just feel like a lot of when rosin was first coming out, you'd see a lot of people just either doing like the forced buttering and the coins or they're just trying to package it immediately right in the way and the pudding. So then 
So then it's in like a half gram or a gram package, maybe a couple grams versus, and then it curing and buttering and nucleating in that small amount, as opposed to where if you have a hundred grams of rosin, 200 grams of rosin all in a jar in a tight space and it's happening. And now it's, you have 200 grams worth of that happening, that process happening in a closed jar. So some of those turfs and those changes, it's going to be, it's going to be more dramatic than it happening in a single, single gram jar. Right. The amount of airspace in that jar is also a lot different at that point in time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't really thought about that. And in regards to like the consistencies outside of like cold cure, is there anything else that you're working with currently? No, not really. I've been playing around with like the doing the vac and sieve a little bit, dry tech that Cuban does here and there, just as far as as much as using the freeze dryer in the traditional fashion that most people are using right now. It's just, I don't know, it just gets a little old. Yeah, so I've seen... From, from having come from like microplaning hash and like handled resin for like a large number of years and things like that, like just fun to do. Yeah. Get those different consistencies of hash, different appearance. Yeah, I've seen like both of you guys post about it and I wanted to see if you could like kind of elaborate a little bit because so from the outside, it seems like one of the major things has been like this modification to the trays that are being used to actually freeze dry this. Yeah. Right. Some of those. Yeah. And so instead of having like a solid bottom, it's almost like a mesh bottom. It's pretty much the equivalent of what, what was originally considered a, a drying screen or a wicking screen, there's still it's 25U mesh. So it's like the, the same screen that would come in a set of bags or what most rosin pouches are made out of. And so, yeah, it just allows more airflow yeah. readily throughout the, the freeze dryer unit as opposed to the... Yeah, it almost becomes like, I mean, obviously not, but somewhat similar to like a convection oven where it's getting maybe it is more... similar to a convection oven. I you know, guess. even... Or I guess it'd be the difference in between like a like a wired cookie rack versus like a like a plain cookie rack. You're definitely going to get that more airflow through it within the oven. And yeah, yeah. And so, and then the other component to it is adding or kind of going back to the sieving. So you sieve over those screens, and then those screens get dried. So it's like you get almost like the best of both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just you know you're just adding surface area. On multiple levels, I guess that way you're having more surface area in regards to like air traveling through the screens and the patties. I guess not patties at that point if you're if you're sieving it. Yeah, just uh, just breaking it down surface area. There's a lot to be said about surface area. Like I'd always been somebody who'd, who'd snapped up my patties pretty small when freeze drying them, as opposed to just like leaving big bricks right. in a freeze dryer tray. And that's just, just once again coming from that mind state of like having microplaned and like having to see before before a freeze dryer in that commercial state. You know, just how can I create more, like the more surface area? You know, the quicker it's going to dry. So right. Yeah. It's like like we said, kind of really, like similar staying under that similar mindset. With that, uh, yeah, like you said earlier, really like the microplane and the kind of mentality coming from the kitchen to break that down that small and yeah i mean you've been basically through it all so you probably started air drying i think you said right or yeah we were we were big on microplaning we'd occasionally do sieving back in the day if it was a dry material or just like a dryer resin or certain strains just dry quicker so sometimes if you microplane a strain that's like super dry it'll just 
kind of over dry or just dry too quick. So right. Slow it down a little bit by deceiving it once again. Okay. And then kind of as soon as the freeze dryers came in, did you guys make use of those or was there like... Yeah, we were some of like the original original people like really to hop on the freeze dryer trend. Shout out to Fletcher from Archive Seed Bank. I know I thought about the application of freeze dryers and heard about them as far as like scientific lab equipment, but he was the first person that I know of that like took that multi like at that point in time, like four or five thousand dollar gamble to even buy a freeze dryer and just and start try trying to dry hash in it. Yeah. And was the first person to tell everybody about it in Hash Church. Yeah. And then yeah, and then other than him, it was like Michigan Made Melts, I think was like the first person I really saw like raise the freeze dryer on any sort of like real production schedule or like production mentality. Yeah. And ever since there it's just, you know, it was that was the wave. And so for sure, you know, I, <laughs> I, I spoke to Sam from Mile High Melts and he was saying basically for production it's like Freeze dryers are almost necessary, especially oh, for pressing. I mean, yeah, like once again, I guess going back to the air drying and some of those things like that. So when, like 2014, 2015, when we were when we were doing nothing but microplaning as a crew of like four to five people producing like a thousand to two thousand grams a week, we had to maintain ten baking racks with could have twelve cookie sheets on each one, and those would have to be lined with parchment. And sterilized and cleaned every time and so you'd be like scraping racks every like 24 hours pretty much yeah, yeah. <laughs> the amount of waste and the amount of production time it saved saved from water hash when when the freeze dryer made its way into the hash lab and became accepted it was like it was huge right huge yeah i, mean, I can fit you know and what is like the first size of a freeze dryer, like the medium, the medium size of the original, like four shelfers. You, you can stick 200 grams a shelf, you can stick 800 grams on there. You need like eight to 10 baking racks. Right. Yeah. I mean, More than that even. You probably need to do that two to three times over, over like multiple days to dry that. Well, now you're sticking it in a little, the same size as a vac oven for 24, 24 plus hours as opposed to like 20 baking racks for like two to three days. Yeah. It's, the space, <laughs> it's the huge. Time, it's different. Everything. People I mean, don't, people don't fathom that now or even like begin to think that or readily think about it, I guess with a lot of people just recently coming into smoking salt and less. Right. It's definitely, it's, it's come along. It's definitely come along in those last couple of years. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like, you know, what do you feel like when you first started was, I guess most people's, understanding of solventness or was there a lot of understanding uh there was very little understanding of it you know most people hated on it most people didn't really care to have any understanding of it they just you know try to dab it once on educated and be like this this tastes like toast taking a red hot dab or a hotter dab of melt and being like this tastes like burning it tastes like burning because you're burning it (laughs) yeah so that that came i guess with kind of like the the, 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 yeah, some of the, like the dabbing etiquette and shit. I was making production melt before like the first, the first like actual carb cap was even released, but like highly educated in regards to just like dabbing temperature and dabbing etiquette and some of those things. Like I had, I discovered that, you know, dabbing water hash tasted better the longer I'd wait on a nail, let alone like actually even having a real device to like, Carb cap and nail with at that time. You're Michael. You're Michael. Yeah. <laughs> On the screen. 
how do you, I guess, how do you see your kind of role in highlighting the resin as a hash maker? Like what, what, how do you see your, yeah. How do you see your role in that? Just to showcase what the grower's done, I guess, as much as like I can act like I have some fancy technique or like I'm super productive and can wash a bunch like in comparison to like maybe other people there's not there's not much I can really do at that given moment to make any huge improvement or difference in the resin. So it's just really just just trying to like let the hard work that was done up until that point just really be showcased as far as just being meticulous, as far as the cleanliness of, of like the 90 bag, you know, trying to get it as clean as possible or not quality or making sure it's properly dry. That's something I guess I've always been decently anal about or everybody, anybody that I've worked with or trained in the past, you know, in person to other hash companies. You know, so I want to be stable and be able to be enjoyed for a while. Yeah. If you had to just do stuff, I guess, for yourself or personal almost, and you could pick any of the drying methods, and it wasn't for production, what do you think you would go with? I'd probably go with the back dry, the season back dry. It is a little more, it definitely adds time and like the wash process and the workflow. You can't quite be as productive if you have to like stop and see patties and you can't quite put as much hash in or on a tray in comparison to like a big brick once it's like, you know, all, all sieved out. But that's, I don't know, that's, that's, I guess my favorite at the moment. I was like still really attached to microplane hash for the longest time and probably would have said that up until a few months ago. I like played around in microplanes and hash that I had as much as like, I love it. There's definitely, there's definitely a slightly better terpene retention from using things like the freeze dryer and being able to dry hash at like that 40 40 degree range as opposed to it being air dry in like a 60 degree room. Right. Yeah. And you know, I, I've seen like images of some of the results doing kind of like the freeze dryer sieve combination. Yeah. And by the way, I wanted to give a, a big shout out to Mitchell at hash Drip on Instagram for letting us do the interview here. Yeah. But thank you. yeah, we were talking you were talking earlier about it. And you guys wanted to have him? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it. But I was telling him that it looks like uh, almost like a blend of sea hash in the sense that it looks kind of almost chunky. Yeah, yeah, you get some of that uh, that more granular, chunky look to it, but you definitely get that wider color. That was just from, that's become more common with the freeze dryer and that lack of oxygen. In the drying process. Yeah, but yet it still has like this weird, like, I don't know how to explain. Sometimes freeze dryer has like a special almost like look to it, almost like a, almost like a layering over it. I don't know how to explain that. Sure. But yeah, it's interesting to see that the results actually look like exactly like what you're doing, right? So like you're, you're merging these two kind of technologies yeah. and it really does look like that. So I, I found that kind of intriguing and I find it intriguing that it's kind of your favorite kind of consistency right now with have you thought about like what would happen if instead of sieving it was microplaned and then and then in there yeah i've done that you have yeah and well, I was in your mouth Ooh. i'll smoke some milk yeah uh, uh, yeah for sure <laughs> personal preference on smoke milk 
Yeah, Mel, and I, I mean, I can't even lie, up, in, up until a couple months ago, I'd honestly even kind of preferred BHO over rosin. I'm just like, I've definitely like been about six, seven months now not smoking BHO, so I've definitely learned to appreciate rosin a little bit more, but it's definitely like stuck in my old, old like grandpa ways of like, no, I just, I just love smoking Mel. Yeah. How much, I guess, of your material stays Mel, or is that just strictly up to like the farmer, I guess? As of now, I guess with like the the current the current market and like standpoint we are as a brand, pretty much all the stuff that that I'm producing right now gets pressed into rosin. As we aren't in like any sort of we aren't in any like immediate license situation right now. Right. Yeah. So I'm just like making bulk cash and feels out to people to press rosin, which is nice. It allows me to have like you know get to make a bunch of hash and. Do yeah, what I like, but you know, there's not, there's not really currently branded trichrome heavy extracts out there, at least in large amounts. Right. Um, we got some like cool legal projects, hopefully coming up in the next year, um, and some newer things. But yeah, that's been the whole thing with a lot of the people that I've spoken to in California. You know, everybody's kind of still figuring out, jumping through groups. Yeah, you know, and just like a lot of raids and things like that lately. You know, it's definitely got a lot of people like hesitant. Yeah, yeah. Especially, I mean, you know, I, I keep up with a lot of people from kind of NorCal, and you see, you know, they got a bunch of stuff going up in there where they're like raiding a bunch of people and counties and stuff. And so, it, I'm sure the same is going down here in, in Southern California to some degree. Yeah. Good to go right away. Uh, that is the GMO. Oh yeah, that's fire. Is that Cuban GMO? Yeah. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, that's from Ozzy. <laughs> All right. That's back dried. Yeah, back dried. <laughs> I got you. Thank you, man. Well, cool, man. You know, I know we've taken up quite a bit of your time. I had a few no kind of questions that I like to do a little bit over the spectrum of all kinds of stuff that I like to ask towards the end. Yeah, no worries. But since, so you're originally from California, you yep. said you moved out to Denver, you were out there for a while, you know, you hear people, everybody kind of thinks that their state kind of has like the best weed, especially there's this thing between, you know, California, Colorado, not that, you know, that's, do you want me to pick one? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, you know, Colorado will forever have the, the disadvantage of, of their climate and just having a extremely low relative humidity in a vast majority of the state. So the term like Colorado crunch is very much a real thing. Like herb gets very dry, very quick out there. If you don't know what you're doing, it's the same thing kind of with like hash too in the growing environment. It's just like less humid. I feel like Terps, Terps definitely maybe develop a little bit different out there. Yeah, I mean, I've noticed that when I've, I've bought like, you know, like herb over there, it's it's typically really, maybe not necessarily overly dry, but it's pretty dry in comparison yeah. to the ones that you typically get here in California. So, yeah, I that does make a big difference. And like you said, it, it probably obviously translates into the hash as well. But 
So, I mean, is that to so your answer is California, we would say, overall? you would Yeah, if I mean, if I had to pick a, yeah. a state's weed that I was, like, forced to smoke <laughs> forever <laughs> over one of them, I'd definitely go with California weed or California. See, and then I, I had people that argue that, would be like, no, Colorado has better hash, but if I had to smoke flour forever, it'd definitely be, like, California flour. Right. Um, but I don't know. I'd probably just still pick California as a whole. And, you know, since we're kind of on the subject of flower, do you have a preference, like, indoor, outdoor? I, mean, I won't really smoke. I'm not against smoking outdoor, but after having done, like, a decent, some, you know, outdoor grows and hoop houses for a couple years, like, straight outdoor, after you see, after you see, like, a bird shit on a plant, and you're like, you know, it's their outdoors, it's never going to be the cleanest, that's not necessarily the truest for for every plot or every plant, but uh, I definitely prefer, as far as smoking flour or even hash material, I at least like it to have some covering on it. Even if it's just a basic dip, I just like right. to know that it's not like... Just like outdoor, outdoor, outdoor yeah. not protected at all. Yeah. So greenhouse, yeah. Yeah, I, I've i talked to a few people that, you know, they've done the outdoor and yeah, they definitely talk about like the elements are just gonna make the plant, you know, dusty and yeah there's a lot to be said about uh an outdoor plot when it comes to like washing it versus not washing it in regards to like well how dusty or how windy is it like where's its nearest road how dusty is that road how many times does it get driven during the day because like resin is sticky and then like you know the that dust is can get caught on some of that plant material right yeah and i mean i you know i don't know if even if that goes to water and gets washed, are the screens, you know, the microns even small enough to capture that or, or not? Uh, I don't know. Uh, and once again, it's one of those things that's like hard to definitively say. Like, let's say when looking at a 90 or a piece of six star hash, once it's all, all pressed out, some of that micro contaminant that regardless of how anal you clean your bags or how clean your workspace is, well, we see some of that, some of that micro contaminated in hash. Some of that will be, whether it be dust from an indoor grow room or like the soil medium, or if we're talking outside in greenhouses, that yeah, it can be from the dust, just like any any place from the environment. I guess at that point. Yeah, yeah. If I guess you could go back at this point and give yourself advice when you first started about six years ago or maybe even before then about being in the cannabis industry, what would it be? I don't know. Take things with a grain of salt, I guess, or like, yeah, just don't, don't, don't trust no one but yourself in this industry. There's a lot of great people in this industry, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that probably goes for most industries, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. It's I, like never to be selfish or a dick or anything, but you know, just, just good to Look out for yourself. Yeah. Speaking of, you know, good people in the industry, who are some of the people that, like, you look up to or are people that maybe you respect, you know, that you've kind of met along the way? I mean, I've had the privilege of meeting a lot, a lot of great and awesome people along the way. A lot of awesome and dope, great people. But I guess some of the, some of the ones have been the most, like, influential to me and, I like I get I guess I've really valued meeting them and like their friendships is Aussie definitely probably the best one of like the best dudes I guess 
in the hash making game that I've got the privilege of meeting. He's just a beyond genuine dude. I'll never forget like the first time I met him at the Seattle Cup when he had his like hash lunchbox just packed with like a hundred plus grams of just like six star and dry sift and just like didn't really think that was possible at the time and it just blew my mind. Bubble man. Um, I've had the privilege of like traveling around Spain with him a little bit, spending some good time with him uh, during the last Amsterdam Cup that High Times did out there. I don't know. Definitely got a lot of love and uh, respect for Todd, the Resin Ranch, and uh, Flynn, Whoop Sauce, those dudes. Those dudes are crushing it up north. Just always been super hardworking dudes and always like put, put in a lot of good for the solventless movement. Yeah, yeah. There's and a lot. Ken, of once again, like dude, once again, that's that's always the homie. That's always the brother. He's definitely, you know, kept a lot of that that wave of solventless going going in Colorado. Yeah, I know he's kind of doing his new thing now. It seems yeah, like he's got his single source project where he he's growing some part of the time, I guess, as well as making the hash with it. He's got a couple partners in that, so that's that's super dope. I'm proud of him doing that. Yeah. It seems like they're doing good stuff and maybe hopefully being under that brand will help him with the Instagram situation because. Oh, you know, he's at, yeah, he's at his 10th or so time getting deleted. Uh, I just, I, I don't even know if he's attempting anymore, but uh, luckily they're not fucking with the company account. So I'll knock on, knock on wood for him on that one, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. He's like the most, <laughs> most deleted guy on Instagram, man. And you know, it's, it's, it's a weird thing because it's, I feel like something that, only people, maybe not only people, but people in the cannabis industry have to deal with because like Instagram is such a big thing. Yeah. You know, and, um, it is rather unfortunate and up until, up until recently, yeah, the cannabis industry was like one of the main, not necessarily only ones, but one of the main ones really suffering from mass censorship from the social media from the social media sites, specifically Instagram. Um, the original Trichomevy Extracts account shut down. Um, it was like tied to an email that no longer exists and like things like that. So it's like, they've definitely done a lot of like modern day book burning for lack of lack of a better term, by like just completely deleting people's Instagram and moments in time that were timestamped of like people doing specific things in hash, hash culture. Right. I guess that would be like my only my own, only real like saltiness or animosity in the whole like IG deleting thing with being able to like go back and showcase things from like late 2013 or early 2014 being like showing. Yeah. Showing I mean, it, it's things. really going to become basically like historical documentation. Of yeah. It. Cause mean, that's what it is nowadays. And like, that's how we, that's definitely how we've come to societally use, use social media. So it is unfortunate to, to see our industry, I guess, suffer from some of that censorship from the, from the social media sites. Yeah. Um, I know it's like another current big thing in like the current political atmosphere, which I won't go on, but it's uh, yeah. Censorship. It's lame. Yeah. Fuck that shit. <laughs> Let people do their stuff. Right. Uh, yeah. It almost feels like, again, speaking with Mitchell earlier, like, it, like something else is like needed, you know, like a different platform, but there's, I don't know a platform that would get kind of the exposure that something like Instagram has at this point. You know, it would be, that'd be, that's kind of a tough. It is, it is something tough, I guess, with how far reaching their, their network and business and 
things like that is nowadays. Just so how well known that I mean, like you know, like you're posting pictures. Saying the same thing about Facebook. Oh, what if someone created a new Facebook? It's a great idea. I mean, it's like we definitely, I feel like, culturally or societally, need something that's kind of support, less censoring. Yeah. Support our needs better, I guess, and less censoring. But uh, yeah, I, don't know, I guess, I guess we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I'm sure things will change in all kind of different aspects. One thing that we didn't really talk about that I kind of wanted to bring up is you're like a multiple <laughs> award winner, not only for High Times, but for Legends of Hash as well. Yeah. And it's not only Legends of Hash, but you've taken like first, second, and third over the years. Yeah. So Legends of Hash, it would have been 2014 was the year that it was first and third, I want to say, maybe 2013. It would have been Legends of Hash 11, and that was the first place was a string called Dank Commander, which is uh, from Rare Dankness Seeds, and it's uh, San Diego Cat Piss, and one of his unknown males, RD1, RD2, whatever he claims those to be, and that had won first place, and then it was uh, a Moonshine Haze, his, uh, his breeders cut of that, um, took third. <laughs> I wasn't even there that year. I'd just given I'd given that hash to to Tony Versura of, of Blue River Terps to just smoke and go out there with and enjoy. Yeah. And I yeah, I didn't even know it was getting entered in Legends of Hash. I kinda knew that was a thing. I remember getting the phone call. I was in line for like some some sandwich shop thing with some homies in downtown Denver and getting a phone call from Dread, Dread Smokes Weed, who works with like the DNA boys now. He was working he was working with Rare Dangness at the time and was out there and like gave me a call. He's like, Bro, you just you just won Legends of Hash. I was like, well, what do you like what do you what do you mean? <laughs> He's like, You won first and third. I was like, Well like I didn't even give you guys two things. He's like, I don't I don't know, man. You'll like we'll we'll figure it out and like figured it out once they all got back. And then the next year was with Ken, and that was a cool Legends of Hash. I entered a stream. We each, you know, how to bring a jar. It's like part of the format of Legends of Hash. Everybody's got to like bring their jar, their entry. I brought a, a strain Fabuloso from Arcade, and I think that was like from the first the first time it was ever washed from like a hoop house in his in his backyard in the west side of Denver. And then Ken brought a strain called Blue Suede Shoes from our boy Robert. Growing Kush Mile High. And that's just had like this weird blueberry pop tart, like suede leather funk to it, and just like that white, good melt. And we took second with it that year. The following year, with that entry that he submitted. And I know. So that was the blue suede shoes you said? Blue or? suede shoes, yeah. 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 I mean, so those are definitely some pretty like prestigious awards, you know, especially when you took first and and third and weren't even meaning to compete at that point. You know what I mean? Like you didn't, you weren't like aware that you were going to compete with that, but that's cool, man. I mean, and then with the high times, was that all in Denver or high times we've done? Oh man, we never got our, we never got our first in high times. We always ended up, (laughs) we always ended up falling short to once again, shout out to Ozzy. Pretty much every time we took second, he was first. Is that when he was kind of killing with the dry sift? Yeah, as well as I think some of his water hash entries. It's hard to necessarily recall off top, but um, like five high times wards all together in between like the crew of when it was like me and Ken, like the, some of the earlier homies. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's also pretty impressive. So that's, you know, it's cool. Like, those are some of the real, uh, it's kind of early ones. Sure. Know? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I never gave anybody shit for any of my awards. I know Cuba never gave anybody shit for any of his awards other than Good Hash. I don't right. know. You know, there's a lot of speculation whether that's that's the case nowadays about, like, the current, current award and judging format. So, you know, it's good to know, I guess, or to feel that like when, when we were doing those things, they were, they were like well received and meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. Do you kind of keep up with uh, any of the hash makers like locally? No, I'm a hermit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I guess as far outside of people that I do business with, no, I don't really like. I mean, I talk with people on, you know, try and like, you know, just as far as like progressing things, I think I'll talk and chat with a lot of local hash makers as far as like Poof and Resin and like the homie from uh, Ogre Farms and some of those dudes, you know. Yeah, I'm actually going to be talking to them tomorrow. So yeah, they looks like they've been killing it. You know, Mitchell today again, just like, I think he had some, some Starburst OG or no, great that was OG. the great pie OG. Yeah. And I mean, like. Yeah, the jar literally looked like water, you know? It's just, uh, they're, they're definitely doing something well. But, you know, again, since you've been in the industry so long, what would you say is a key or some keys to having longevity? Just being persistent. It's that quality. If you're persistent and you always have quality and you're consistent as well with those things, you can stick around. Yeah. So it's, um, the, it's the good relationships too. You know, like once again, I'm just a hash maker. I don't, I don't necessarily currently grow all my own material. So for me, I guess my current thing that allows me to succeed really well is having those good, valuable relationships with, with good people who grow really good herb. Yeah. And so it's just staying once again, staying consistent with them, like talk to them regularly regularly give them information back and forth to just like, you know, make what we're doing both better. Yeah. I mean, it, I always get the sense that like the grower and the hash maker kind of inform each other's work, you know, that's the way it should be. Yeah. You know, you're making them understand the resin better maybe in, in some ways. And obviously they're the ones who like make the adjustments needed or whatever to do that. So it's a very interesting kind of relationship or dynamic. One of my, uh, really my last question is, if you got a chance to hear somebody else get interviewed on the show, who would you like to see? And maybe a little bit of why. Oh man. I don't know, I think seeing Ken come on here would be cool. I feel like he'd have a lot of very similar information and insight to give, as, as well as maybe go into some of like the funnier, like things of our like first couple years of making hash it's like i'd love to get into now but like just like equally go on for hours I'm trying to really think maybe some of like the european dudes and like the dudes out of spain right now who are killing it i know it'd be, it'd be hard to like physically get with them but as far as facilitating um stuff i feel like there's there's a lot of cool cool stuff popping off in the barcelona crowd right now as far as um their hash making and ability just popping off and just really readily paying attention to what we got going on over here in the States. 
Yeah, it definitely seems to be kind of flourishing over there right yeah. now. Not only the house making, but I'm assuming also the growing. Definitely. You know, and so, yeah, that would be interesting. I've, I've actually been thinking about that and like there's various people that I follow out there. And so that would be a very different kind of take on hash making, I think, because they have they, such a deep hash culture out right, there. And yeah. it's like always had solventless out there, I guess, in regards to like pressed hash and Moroccan hash and those sort of things. But I know it's like I went out to, I think I went out to Barcelona once again, like 2000, 2014, and just like the caliber of weed and hash that they had now or had then. And then like have now four years later, it's just like they're growing and progressing at such an exponential rate in comparison to like what Colorado grew or California grew They're They're having like their whole period of like the nineties and early medical boom all within like a couple of years. Cause they, they don't want to be left in the dust and you know, they're, they're really paying attention to the genetics and the techniques and the equipment we're using there. Any, any sort of rosin press or, freeze dryer you can get out here you know they're they're making sure they have that equipment out there they're getting the same seeds you know they're getting the the same cuts out there yeah i mean i definitely i think one is like information it's just much more readily available yeah. i mean like real time you know they can keep up with the same feed that people here can and they can learn anything and everything they need to know like you said about kind of different aspects of it and so, yeah, it's it's definitely growing really fast. And like you said, it seems almost like at a more accelerated rate than it happened here, right? So, like, they're yeah. taking all the knowledge maybe that was kind of gathered here through time and experience and just, like, taking it, like, maybe not to necessarily another level, but to the same level for sure, at least. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, cool. Well, again, I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy, like I said earlier. You know, Sunday's kind of a tough day to do an interview, but sure. I appreciate you coming through and doing that. Again, this is Jibs from Tricom Heavy Extracts. Uh, you can follow him on Instagram at Tricom Heavy Extracts 1. That's with the number one. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to say? No. All right, cool. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, I appreciate you. And again, just special shout out to Mitchell Hashtrip on Instagram for allowing us to kind of crash his pad and do the interview here. So. Um, really appreciate it. Yeah. All right, man. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you'd like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.